Good morning, Golden Corner Church. Good to see you. Is that a tractor? Okay. All right, good, good. They cut it off to conserve fuel, I guess. Good to see you. Now, if you're visiting with us for the first time, you may have be asking yourself, was that a Joe Cocker song they opened up the service with? It was, and, and you may be asking, why would you do that? Well, I asked them to. And I asked them if they would to change the lyrics, because for those of you who are familiar with the song, you know that old Joe says, I like to get high with a little help from my friends. So I said, we've got to cut that one, guys, cut that out. And the reason I ask is, the song had some inspiration in regard to the series, the sermon series that I started last week entitled with a little help from my friends. So you can see that that's where I chose to steal the title for the series. Now last Sunday I shared the thesis of the entire sermon series and it is this. To become what God wants us to be, we will need a little help from our friends. Did you hear that? And say we might need some help along. We will need A little help from my friends. Or in other words, you could say it like this. God uses people to help people grow into the person that he wants them to be. Now this ought to open a couple of very important questions up to us. Question number one, what kind of friends do we need? And question number two would be, what kind of friend are we supposed to be? So for the next five or six Sundays, we're going to study the Bible. And we're going to identify the kind of friend who helps others become what God wants them to be. So let's look at the Bible for a while, okay? In just a few moments, we're going to read a few verses from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12. But before we do, I need to set the stage and tell you what is happening. Last week, I told you the story of David, the little shepherd boy whom God chose to become king of Israel. And we watched through the story as God took an unlikely choice and made him the obvious choice of a nation. And with the help of a good friend named Jonathan, David did become king of Israel. Now today we're going to talk about David again. But there's a big difference here. We're not talking about David the little shepherd boy. We're now talking about David the middle-aged man. At this point in his life, he's somewhere between the age of 50 and 55. I imagine he's got some gray in his beard. Uh, When he gets up out of a chair, he might groan just a little bit. May have had an AARP card in his wallet. He had been king for about 20 years. David had lived kind of a charmed life. He went from being a shepherd to slaying a giant to serving on the staff of the king of Israel as a harpist. He went from harpist to personal armor bearer for King Saul. He went from armor bearer to a commander in Saul's army. He went from being a commander in Saul's army to being the best commander in Saul's army. And he went from that to becoming the king of Israel. 
His life was actually just a succession of successes. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The Bible says it was springtime. It was the time when kings took their armies to battle. And David didn't go. David sent his men, his armies out, with Joab, as a guy named Joab, as their commander. And he didn't go. You say, well, why didn't he go? You know, I don't know, but I got a feeling that uh, from what I read here, David just felt he needed some personal time. He needed some downtime. And I believe David was devoting himself to just vegging around the house. I believe he stayed up late at night playing video games. Got up late, binge-watched programs off Netflix, ate Cheetos, took naps. The Bible said one day he got up from his afternoon nap. And he walks out on the roof of his house. I can see him in my mind in his pajamas. He's got his robe on. It's not tied together. Hair sticking all up, unkept. He shuffles out onto his roof, walks out where he can look over his kingdom. And something caught his eye. Maybe we should say someone caught his eye. On the rooftop below his... He saw a woman there taking a bath. The Bible said she was a beautiful woman. It really says this. She was a woman of unusual beauty. And as we would say in Oconee County, she was naked. I believe at that moment, he, he, a, a mental war broke out in his mind. And I believe there was one voice saying, David, David, turn around and get back in that house, man. Turn around and get in that house. Get yourself a cold shower. Get out the Bible. Have a quiet time. You need to do something other than just stand here and stare. I believe there was another voice going, David, 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 would you look at that? Unfortunately, David chose to listen to the latter voice, and all he did was stand there and stare until desire reached a dangerous level. He sent a messenger down and said, go find out who the woman is. He came back and said, her name's Bathsheba. And then he said, she is the wife. She is the wife of Uriah. Now, I believe there was subtle warning in that. I believe he's saying, hey, chief, look, I, I did what you told me to do, but you need to know something. She's spoken for. She's taken. And she's married to Uriah, and Uriah and David were friends, and Uriah was one of the most well-known warriors in David's army. I believe it was a subtle warning, and I believe David chose not to heed that warning. He sent some other messengers and said, go get her and bring her to me. Bathsheba was brought into his quarters. And the two slept together. He didn't rape her. It was consensual. It was a man and a woman consenting to sin together. To sin against God and to sin against Uriah by committing adultery. One night stand, she goes home, he stays at the palace. Simple enough. Not really. In due time, Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant. 
she conceived on that night. She sat down and wrote a little note, sent it to David. I can see David thumbing through his mail, you know, junk mail, sales papers. It comes with this little note. It's from Bathsheba. Huh. He opens it up. Oh, it's short and to the point. She said, I'm pregnant. That'll mess up your plans for the day, won't it? I'm pregnant. You see, sin always gets complicated in time. Now, David had a real dilemma, and so did Bathsheba, because you know where Uriah was at? He was out on the battlefield. He was nowhere around. He was going to be there for quite some time. So they both recognized when old Uriah comes back, I'm either going to be great with a child or I'm going to have a child. But either way, he's going to know it's not his child. Now, David was a smart dude. And he was a powerful dude. And he was a very confident dude. You know what he thought? I can fix this. I know what to do. He wrote a letter to Joab and said, you need to give Uriah some leave, send him home. For a few days, Uriah comes in off the battlefield. David has him over, has a big spread, big shindig. Ask him a lot of questions he really didn't want the answers to. How is Joab doing in his leadership role? How are the troops doing? How is the war? He didn't care. And then he said to Uriah, here's what I want you to Go home and relax. You've des- you deserve it. You've earned it. Go home to your wife and just have a good evening together. He even sent a gift over to his house. Now, you know what he was wanting. He wanted Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba so that when it was found out she was pregnant, Uriah would just assume she's pregnant with my child. So you know what Uriah did? Uh, He didn't go home. He went down to the entrance to the palace where the palace guards had their sleeping quarters, and he just hung out with them all night. Well, the next morning, David is told, Uriah spent the night down there with the palace guards. So David, David asked him, said, dude, what are you thinking? What, what's, what, what's wrong with you? He said, well, I, I got to thinking about this. Uh, my captain, Joab, and all my comrades, they slept in tents in a field last night. They couldn't sleep with their wives, so I wouldn't sleep with mine. Right, David's got to start feeling a sense of panic here. It's not, it's not working out. It's not unfolding as he had thought. So he says, I'll tell you what, take one more leave, spend one more night. He has him back over to the house. You know, he literally winds him and dines him. The Bible said David got Uriah drunk. I mean, every time the goblet was empty, oh, David was tipping the bottle, have another. You know, he's thinking, I get him intoxicated, he'll go home, he'll sleep with his wife, problem solved. You know what the drunk Uriah did? He went down to the sleeping quarters of the palace guards, and he slept it off with the boys. Now, David's frustrated, so he's got to change his plan. He sat down, he wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and this is what he said. During the next heated battle, you make sure you push Uriah to the front line. You put him in a vulnerable position. You put him in harm's way. And you back off. You let the enemy kill him. 
Do you know the Bible says of David that he was a man after God's own heart? Do you know that? Do you understand what he's doing now? Do you understand what he's doing? He's arranging the death of a friend. He is setting up a friend's murder. He's committed adultery. He's attempted deception. Now he's arranging a murder. He writes this out, seals it up, seals it with the king's royal seal, and guess who he gave it to? You want to talk about a cold-hearted guy on a downslide. David gave it to Uriah and said, take this to Joab. An old, innocent, unknowing Uriah took it to his commander. His commander opened it up. Can you just imagine him looking at Uriah? Folded it up in his pocket. They actually were attacking a town inhabited by the Ammonites. Joab made sure. He, he, the Bible says Joab knew where the best archers would be positioned on his wall, and he made sure he got Uriah right there. And he got him way too close, way too close. And then apparently backed up. And the Bible said those archers killed Uriah, and they killed several, several other Israelite soldiers before they could clear the area. So now David is guilty of murdering his best friend, but he's guilty of multiple murders. Joab sat down and filled out a battle report. He gave it to one of the soldiers, and he said, you need to take this and give it to David and let him read what happened. And he said, he's going to read that we actually lost some men who were shot by archers on a wall, and he's a great warrior. He knows you don't do that. You don't let that happen. And said, so just anticipate this. David's going to get agitated and he said, the moment he gets agitated with you, just say this, Uriah's dead. So the messenger goes, he gives David the report. I want to tell you how much of a hypocrite this man has become at this point. You know what he said? He said, well, it's war. You win some and you lose some. He said, tell Joab not to get discouraged, but just to fight harder next time. And maybe he'll take that city. What a hypocrite. And how cold this man had become. Bathsheba learned that her husband was dead. She went into a period of mourning, which probably only lasted a few days. A few days. And as soon as that mourning period was over, old David sent for her, and she came to his house, and she became one of his wives, and in time she bore him a son. It appears that old David's gotten away with this, doesn't it? Last sentence, chapter 11, says this, but God was displeased with this thing that David had done. Which brings us to chapter 12, verse 1. You ready to read? We're going to be reading a conversation that took place between two friends. A guy named Nathan and old David. The Bible says, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. You understand, it's about a year later. It's about a year later. So they're sitting down, perhaps they've had a cup of coffee, and Nathan said, hey man, I've got to tell you this story. He said, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd... He took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. 
Look how David reacts. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and and, and for having no pity. I want you to look what Nathan said next because it is blatant, brutal honesty. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. How that must have cut him deep into his soul. How that must have stung. Nathan continued, he said, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, making sure he knew where this message come from, says, I anointed you king of Israel and I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you, just listen to this, much, much more. I would have done so much more for you. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. That's straightforward truth, isn't it, man? That's not holding any punches. You're going for the jugular in that little sermon, aren't you? Verse 13, look how David responds. Then David said to Nathan, You got me. You're speaking the truth. I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. Now, why would, why would he say that? You won't die for this sin. I'm going to tell you why. God is about to kill this man. His man. But because he acknowledged his sin, God said, okay, I'll tell you what I do. I'll take, I'll take death off the table. God wanted David to be the king of Israel. He made him the king. God wanted David to continue being the king of Israel. Is about to end. You know what enabled David to keep becoming what God wanted him to be? The honest words of a dear friend. And what do we learn in this story? I think it's pretty simple. To become what God wants us to be, we need friends who are honest. Painfully honest. We need friends like Nathan who will confront us with the truth when need be. You ask why, Ronnie? Because we're all just like David. You listen carefully to me. It won't take me five minutes to tell you the application. We're all just like David. Every one of us. Inside of us, there is a person who loves God with all their heart. And who desires to please God. That person's in us. But there's another person who lives in us. That loves sin and desires to please self. Jesus alluded to this when he said, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is the part of us that loves God and wants to please him, and the flesh is the part of us that loves sin and wants to please ourselves. You understand that these two entities are constantly struggling within us for control. And far too often we, like David, allow our fallen human nature to dictate our actions and we sin. If we're not careful, sin leads to more sin until sin becomes a way of life. 
When this happens, it's likely that our, our friends will see this before we do. Because we are masters of rationalizing and excusing our sins. And convincing ourselves that wrong is right. But our close friends, they're not so easily fooled. They'll recognize sin for what it is. And hopefully, like Nathan, at some point, they will confront us with the truth. To become what God wants us to be, we need friends who will speak up and tell us the truth when they see us taking the wrong path. We need friends who will be honest with us. So in light of that truth, what, what am I hoping you'll do? I'm hoping you'll do two things. One of two things. Number one is be led and be loving. There's someone in your world, kind of like David, they've gotten off track. They appear to be in self-destruct mode. You see it, you've seen it for a long time, and you've been praying for them and praying for them and praying for them. The time may have come for you to do more than pray. It may be time for you to confront them with the truth. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It may be time for you to be a real stand-up friend and confront them with the truth. It may be time to be honest with them. If so, I want to encourage you to be led and be loving. Let God lead you in this. Never confront anyone unless you know for sure that God is leading you. Why? Because God knows when the timing is just right. Nathan was sent by God to confront David about a year after he started all this sin. Why not sooner? If Nathan had come sooner, I'm not sure that David would have listened. But oh, what a difference a year made. During this one-year period, David wrote the 32nd and the 51st Psalm. And in those Psalms, he described his emotional state. He was miserable. Sin had not made his life better. Sin made it worse. A full year of misery had David ready to listen, and God knew that. When it comes to being honest with your friends, don't jump the gun and don't drag your feet. Let God lead you in this. You say, Ronnie, how can I be sure? You know, there have been times that God has called on me to sit down and honestly confront uh, friends. And and for me to know that it's God and the timing is right and I need to do this, I, I answer three questions. Question number one, Does the person I feel like I need to confront consider me to be their friend? Do they know that I know them and know them well? Do they they know that I love them? Would they trust me? Friends earn the right to be honest with friends. Honest confrontation between two strangers never works. It's just weird. I remember when I was pastoring my first church, we had a visitor one morning and I knew, I knew his face and I knew his name, but I didn't know him and he didn't know me. Now, when the service was over, he hung around and we began to talk. And the next thing I know, man, he is dressing me down. He began to list the things that I was doing wrong as a pastor. And he began to tell me all the things that I needed to change. And he said, I'll tell you what, man, next Sunday morning, you need to stand in front of your church and you need to apologize to them for the sorry job you're doing here. I'm thinking... Who in the world do you think you are? You don't know me. I don't know you. You know what it produced in me? Confusion 
and anger, and I'm still mad about it. Can you tell it? You say, I think God might be leading you. Is it a friend? Would they consider you a friend? Uh, Because if not, you say, well, I really don't know him that well. I can tell you, it ain't God. Let it go. Second question I ask is, do I feel anxious about it? Do I feel some fear? You know, if I, God, you want me to go talk to him? You want me to, Ronnie, if I feel, if I was afraid to do that, then it couldn't be God, could it? Well, on the contrary, if you feel fear, it probably is God. You know what you call a person that likes to confront people? Uh, You call them a nut. You know what? They're nuts. If somebody just likes jumping on people and pointing out their flaws and errors, and you ought to do this and you ought to change that, what do you think? Listen, that's a nut. That person needs some kind of help. If you, if you feel eager to confront somebody, I can't wait to tell them this. I'm going to lay... And listen, if, listen, if that's you, you're not being led by God. You're being driven by anger. God's leading you. It'll scare the pants off of you. I remember we were doing this Daniel fast one time. I know I don't look like I've ever done a fast, but I did this fast one time. <laughs> it's been a long time ago. We were doing it for 21 days, 17 days in. I'm praying for this guy. He's a dear friend of mine. I love, I love him. And but I was seeing some things, man. I was seeing some things that concerned me. And I've been praying my heart out, praying with fasting. And one day, the 17th day of this, God said, uh, I need you to do more than this. I need you to go talk to him. I want you to bring this up, and I want you to bring that up. I want you to bring this up. Well, I remember sitting down on my couch. I had my phone right there on the edge of the couch. And literally, my hands were trembling. I was so afraid. You say, why? Confrontation's risky business, man. I don't care if it is a friend. If you confront them with honesty, one of two things can happen. Either you're going to help them or you're going to hurt them. And you just don't know. It's a roll of the dice. The third question I always ask is, has God given me something to say? You know, I read this story about Nathan. I'm thinking, I wish I was as smart as that dude. I mean, this story he came up with. I mean, here's the facts. Nathan wasn't that bright. God gave him those words. Has God given you something that you feel like you're supposed to pass on? I mean, would this person consider you a friend? Do you feel anxious over it? Has God given you something? All those are indications that I believe God is probably leading you to do this. So follow God's leading, and as you do, be loving. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 15, we're told to speak the truth in love. We don't confront people for our sake. We're always honest with people for their sake. We speak the truth in love because we want to help them. You know, there's a big difference between confrontational honesty and venting. When we're honest with people, we do so because we love them. When we vent to someone, we do so because we're angry with them. And believe you me, people know the difference. Venting is always for our sake, and it always makes matters worse. Honesty is always for their sake, and in time, it can really make things better. I believe Nathan had this right. He was honest with David for two reasons. God was leading him, and he loved David. So if you feel that you've got to confront somebody, you be led, and you be loving. I'm going to tell you what some of you are thinking. It's never going to happen to me. Yeah, it is. It sure is. 
It's going to happen. Second thing you may need to do is be level-headed and be listening. I'm probably speaking to someone whose life is off track. You're headed in the wrong direction. You may only be a few steps down the wrong path, or you may already be tasting the bitter aftertaste of sin. Somebody in your world sees. They've noticed. And they care. They care enough about you that they're probably going to confront you if they haven't already. When you're confronted, keep a level head. Don't become angry. Don't become defensive. Remember, they're doing what friends do. Friends are honest. See the confrontation for what it is. It's not an attack against you. It's an expression of love. The easiest thing in the world to do is to avoid confrontation and just be quiet. You ever thought about this? The guy that went to find out who Bathsheba was, he had to know what the boss man was thinking. He had to know what he did. Did he ever confront him? No. The men who went and got Bathsheba brought her to David's quarters. You think they didn't know what was going on? Sure they did. Did they ever confront him? No. Bathsheba knew good and well that he committed adultery. She saw the misery he was in for a year. Did she ever confront him? No. Joab knew good and well he's a murderer. He's a murderer. Did he ever confront him? No. You know why? Avoiding confrontation is easy. It's easy. If you've got a friend who has mustered up the courage to sit you down and be honest with you, They've overcome a lot to get to that place. It's an expression of how much they love you. So keep you cool. Listen to them. Weigh their words carefully. Listen with an open mind. Don't shoot the messenger. Listen to the message. Recognize the truth. Receive the truth. React to the truth. Get your life back on track. If you've ever had a friend risk the relationship to be completely honest with you, you ought to be thankful. You know why? You got the right kind of friend in your circle. God has blessed you with somebody who is truly going to attempt to help you become the person God wants you to be. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we've got two goals here in mind. Goal number one, we want to search... To search through our circle of friends and make sure that we've got the right kind of friends. Have we got friends who will be honest with us? Who who would tell us the truth? Even at risk of being misunderstood, of losing a relationship, do we have friends like that? God, if not, here's my prayer. Send those friends into our world. We need those friends. 
We need friends who will be honest with us. And God, as we search through this circle of friends, I pray that we'll also search our own heart. Would we be willing to do this for somebody we loved? Lord, do we love enough to be honest when we need to be honest? Do we love them enough to follow through with your leading and speak to them about something that's troubling? Oh God, if not, change us. And help us become the kind of friend who will be honest. kind of friend who would do anything and everything to help our friends become what you want them to be. Well, God, this is step one. We're learning characteristics of these friends. So I pray, God, that you'll keep our hearts and minds open as you continue to identify the kind of friends that we need because we're sure going to need their help. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen. Thank you for coming. You're dismissed.